problems. So as not, usual, not as a couple was having marital good. problems, so they decided to go see a marriage counselor. And it all starts out with the therapist asking the wife first. She seemed to be the one with the problem. He says, well, what's the problem? She says, well, he doesn't show me any affection. He acts like I don't exist half the time. I never get a kiss. I don't, he just, he's, he's in his own world. And so the therapist looks at the husband, looks at the wife, and he asks the wife to stand up. And the therapist went over, gave the wife a great big bear hug and a nice kiss on the cheek. And he turned to the husband and he said, now this is what she needs every single day. So the husband says, well, I can get her here Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but Saturday I bowl, so. <laughs> They'll be finding another therapist in a <laughs> So last week we, we saw some two very important events in chapter 25 and that was the, the death of Samuel, the godly prophet. And we saw, saw also David's meeting with Abigail. And David was wise in taking her advice because he was going to kill her husband Nabal along with everyone else. But because of her, he <coughs> went back and God took care of Nabal and took him right down. And as all nice stories end, Abigail became David's wife. So that was a good story. But this week we're tackling three chapters, 26, 27, and 28, and it's not really easy to do justice to three chapters in 30 minutes. So we're going to do the best we can, but it's God's word, and we'll get out of it what we can. Starting in chapter 26, we see nothing's changed with Saul's attitude. He's continuing to advance into depravity, and David is trying patiently to wait on God's providence. And in verses 1 through 5, we find David and his men are still out in the wilderness as if, and once again, the Ziphites run to Saul and tell Saul where David is. And Saul, in his usual fashion, takes 3,000 of his men and heads out to go after David. He just does not know when to quit. So David hears Saul's heading his way. So he goes out to find out where Saul is. He wants to find out the location. Finds the camp where the king and the men are resting. He looks down from the hill and he sees Saul and all the men and his commander Abner. Saul and Abner are sitting, laying in the middle of a circle of his men and they're all asleep. So starting in verses six through eight, David asks, well, who's gonna go down with me to Saul and to the camp? And Abishai, David's nephew, answers, I will go down with you. So they go into the camp. There lay Saul asleep with his ever-present spear at his head. And Abner, his commanding guard, doing such a great job, they were all out like a light. Abishai is begging David at this point, oh, please, please, just let me put a spear through him. This has to be from the Lord. I mean, look, they're all asleep. We're standing right over the man that's been causing us nothing but torment over the years. And now we have him right in the palm of our hands. This has to be from God. Let's end this thing right here and now. But David remembered scripture. And Chronicles 16 says, touch not my anointed one and do my prophets no harm. So he refused to allow Abishai to do this thing. He was protecting the king. Verses 9 through 10, David says, who can stretch out his hand against the anointed and be without guilt? As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come, that he dies, or he'll go down in battle and perish. David, at this point, is holding back, allowing God his sovereignty, something that must have been hard to do. 
David knew God's word and he used it at this time anyway in guiding his his actions. So Jesus did this very thing too when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He quoted scripture each and every time and he quoted out of Deuteronomy. And as Michelle pointed out last week, what sometimes seems to look like an open door from the Lord is not always what it seems to be. We always have to look to scripture, we always have to pray that this is the right door to be walking through. Because David could have made a huge mistake. In verse 11, he says, The Lord forbid that I should stretch my hand out against the Lord's anointed. David knew Saul was still king over Israel. Even though he didn't act like one, he was still the king. Then in verses 12, David, verses 12 says that David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away and no one knew it or did no one woke up for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. And I thought this was very unique because God is sovereign even over our sleep. In the book of Esther, you recall the king couldn't sleep because God gave him insomnia so the records could be read to him about Mordecai and then all that took place. But now we see God doing the reverse. He's giving all these men a hefty dose of narcolepsy and they were in such a deep sleep they didn't hear anything. Who can come into a camp and take things and not anybody wake up? So we, we, we need to give room for the Lord to avenge our enemies just as David did here. He knew this was coming. In Hebrews 10, the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And David respected whomever God had anointed. First Chronicles 16 and Psalm 105 say, Touch not my anointed ones and do them no harm. Now we have Romans 13:1, which says, Let everyone, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that do exist have been instituted by God. And that that's a scary thought because we want to be more like David. We're often tempted to speak evil of dignitaries because they often don't do what they're supposed to do. Sometimes they don't deserve the office they're put in, but God put them there, and if we insult them, we're actually really insulting God. So that's uh, really not our decision to make. And there's always a little of Abishai in all of us because there's times in our lives we would just love to take matters into our own hands and take revenge on people that have done us harm. But then that makes us the judge and not God. He doesn't need our help. He will see to it in the end that justice is done because that is one of his attributes. He's just and he judges righteously. Our problem is he doesn't do it fast enough for us. So. But that's our problem. That's not God's problem. In verses 13 through 16, David's seen standing on a hill, yelling out to Abner, the guard, accusing him of not taking a very good care of his king because look what I got in my hand. I got a spear and I got a jug of water. Historically, in armies um, back then, um, and even now in, in deserting, uh, leaving a king unprotected brought the death penalty. So this must have frightened Abner to death, and let alone Saul. Verses 17 through 20, Saul recognizes David's voice and then starts sweet-talking him and calls him my son. I don't know too many fathers that want to kill their son, but anyway, that's a stretch. One minute he's trying to kill him, now he's his son. And David says, what have I done that you want me dead? In verses 21 through 25, Saul feigns a superficial repentance in saying, oh, I've sinned. I've committed a serious error. What a revelation. But Saul was not a bit sorry. You never see him go to God about his sin. He was just relieved 
as all get out that he wasn't filleted like a catfish in the, in the camp. Because now he's escaped death twice. He escaped it in the cave, as Michelle pointed out, and now again in the camp. So David offers the spear and the jug up and says, uh, you can have it, but one of your men have to come get it. And Saul turns and blesses David in his usual fashion, and they depart from one another. But this is the last time David's going to see Saul alive. In the Gospel of John, Jesus made a profound statement. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, John wrote, many had believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in man because he's God and he created every man, obviously, but David had the spirit of God in him and he knew Saul's heart. He wasn't going to trust him for a minute. David knew this hunt for him would never end until Saul was taken down by the Lord. But in chapter 27, David changes his tune and he flips to false thinking. And it goes to show you that David's not perfect. We do the same thing. And so I love the transparency of the word of God in that. Verses 1 through 7, David says to himself, I will one day perish by the hand of Saul. Now, did he not just say that the Lord was going to take Saul down? But he says this thing. He's not trusting. He, he was right in not trusting Saul, actually. But he was wrong um, in making this assessment, especially in light of the fact of how many times God had sovereignly protected him. Over and over again, we see this. And in view of the fact that Samuel had told him he was going to be king, Samuel would have never lied to him. So this is what happens when we listen to our own reasoning and we believe lies and we don't center our mind on the truth. Proverbs 3 is clear and says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not onto your own understanding and he will direct your paths. But David was listening to his own reason. That's why he had the faulty thinking he had. So what does David do? He panics. Because whenever you have faulty thinking, you panic. He runs back to Gath, the land of the Philistines. His unbelief in the Lord's protection to keep him in Israel brought him full circle back where he had started when he had faked the insanity before. And running to the ungodly for protection is a mistake that's been made by a few people in the Bible. Abraham ran to Egypt, and he fell into sin. Lot ran to Sodom, and we know where that went, up in smoke. So it, it, we do the same thing. David runs back to Gath, which will only lead to more trouble for him down the road later on. David had crossed the line. He, and he didn't just cross the line geographically. He crossed the line spiritually. These, these were Israel's enemies. We, too, are guilty of running to the ungodly for help sometimes when we panic. I have done it. The worst kind of help and worst kind of advice we could possibly take is from them. When it is the Lord and his word and his people we need to go to every time for refuge and help, especially when we're in need, especially when we're panicked. So David shows up at King Achish's door in Gath with 600 men and two wives. That must have been a nice visit. I hope he went to Publix. But anyway, um, the Philistines no longer saw David as a threat, but perceived him as Saul's enemy because he's running away from him. So he figures, well, he must be on my side now. David ends up staying with the Philistines for 16 months, during which time he asks the king for some land so he can settle his family in a place he can call his own. So the king gives him Ziklag, located in the southern Judean desert. And Ziklag actually was 
already a city belonging to Judah um, that was just never really captured back in Joshua 15. So while King Achish trusted David, thinking he's a traitor to Israel, David's out conducting raids on Israel's behalf, wiping out the very people Saul should have wiped out but failed to do so. Verses 8 through 12 describe how David plows through the pagan territory of the Amalekites, leaving no one alive. He took only the animals and goods back with him. In this way, word would never reach King Achish as to what was really going on, because as the old saying goes, dead men tell no tales. So, they were dead. King Achish's trust in David will end up becoming a snare, as we're going to see later on. Verses 8 through 12. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gershorites, I can never say these words, Gerzites and Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from the ancient times as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And David attacked the land, did not leave a man or a woman alive. He took away the sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish says to David, so where'd you make a raid today? And David said, oh, against the Negev of Judah and of the Negev of Jeremelites and the Negev of the Kenites. Now these Negevs that David's referring to are regions of southern Israel's border uh, by the Sinai Peninsula. So David's lying to King Achish. He's telling him he's killing Israelites, so Achish will think he's on his side, when in reality he's killing the cities of Israel's enemies, leaving no one alive. And verse 12 said that Achish believed everything David said. In all of this, there is a mixture of faith and compromise with David. In one respect, David was obeying God and destroying these pagan people, as it was part of the holy war that God had mandated from the beginning as a judgment on these people, and Saul never finished it. But David excelled at this. But it's hard for us in our day and age to grasp the wiping out of entire people groups, but holy wars were fought throughout the whole Old Testament as God was preparing the people for himself and he was judging those who needed to be judged because of their treatment of Israel. So David obeyed in doing this, but on the other hand, he was lying to Achish. We're all guilty of mixed motives like David had. In one way, sometimes we think we're serving the Lord and in another way, we're guilty about going about it the wrong way, but the end never justifies the means. Lying wasn't the way to go about it and it's always prudent to examine our motives no matter what we're doing for the Lord. And moving on into chapter 28, we're gonna see that David's sin of deceiving Achish is gonna catch up with him. Verses one and two. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, you know this is coming, know assuredly that you'll go out with me, you and the camp and your men, right? And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> anyway, um, Achish answers, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. So he painted himself into a corner here, David did. Naturally, Achish is going to expect David and his men to join in Israel because Achish had provided refuge for him. Achish has so much trust in David at this point, he makes him his bodyguard for life. Now, David is between a rock and a hard place. And like the old saying goes, oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. So, for David. Now the scene shifts now in this chapter from David to Saul. Saul, the perfect picture of an apostate. He was never a believer. He never repented to the Lord. He only went to God when he needed something, like a lot of people do. 
Verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed the land from the land, all those who were mediums and spiritists. The death of Saul actually happened back in chapter 25, but I think his death is being reiterated here to point out that this holy, godly prophet who once spoke God's words to the people was gone, was now gone. There was no one left to receive revelation from the Lord. He had departed, most certainly from Saul earlier on, before his death. The verse also mentions that Saul had banished anyone practicing the art of the occult witches, channelers, whatever you want to call them, from the land. He actually had a moment of obedience. Okay. In verses 4 through 7, everyone's assembling for battle now. Achish and the Philistines are gathered at Shunem, and Saul and the Israelites are gathered at Gilboa. Saul now is about to have a panic attack. Saul takes one look at the mammoth size of the Philistine army, and his heart begins to tremble greatly. Verses 6 through 7. Then Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said, Oh, behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Well, that's interesting. This guy knows a woman in Endor. It seems that even though the mediums were cast out of Israel, it didn't do much good. People still seem to know where to go quick enough to find one. So it didn't stop the practice. Just like prohibition, people still needed to know where to go. The, the cave for the witches was like a speakeasy, you know, for witchcraft. Saul had no choice but to go to the devil because God was finished with him. Isaiah 1.15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from e even you. Though you make many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood. God wouldn't answer Saul by dreams. The Urim wasn't going to help him. David had that. And the prophet Samuel was dead. And remember, Saul had killed all the priests at Nob. So he's on his own now. The Lord refused to answer Saul anymore on the grounds that due to his hard and unrepentant heart, God had finally given him over to a depraved mind, which is nicely described in Romans 1. Time does eventually run out for repentance if one continues to refuse the Lord. Jeremiah said, I will not listen when they call to me in their time of trouble. So now Saul's desperate. So now he's gonna go to the devil, the devil's servant, a witch. But this will be Saul's night of darkness. Verses eight through 10. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two other men with him, they came to the woman by night. And he said, conjure up for me, please. Bring up for me whom I will name to you. But the woman said, behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off all the mediums and spirits from the land. Why are you trying to lay a trap for my life to bring about my death? And Saul bowed to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, there shall no punishment come upon you for this thing. Nice work. Saul uses the Lord's name to make a vow while conversing with Satan's servant, then lies to the woman about her punishment when we all know that her actions are gonna give her eternal hell. The woman was right about the punishment by death because Jewish law, both in Exodus 22 and Leviticus 20, state that thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So the, the offense was capital punishment. But here he is vowing to the Lord and he's in Satan's den, which I think is interesting. Saul, in his request to the witch, uses the word conjure up 
The word conjure almost always refers to the bringing up of the dead, either by witchcraft, voodoo, in any uh, occultic incantation in general. Verse 11, the witch asks, whom shall I bring for you? And Saul says, bring up Samuel for me. That's funny because when Samuel was alive, he wouldn't listen to him. But now Samuel's dead and he wants to talk to him. So, there has to be medication for this. But anyway. <laughs> Verses 12 through 13, when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed with a loud voice and the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? He's anxious. Verse 14, and the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man's coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, the question always comes up here about this whole event as to whether this was actually Samuel or a demon impersonating Samuel or what it was. Was this the work of the witch? Was this the work of God? Commentators have various views on this, many views, but just a few is one was that the witch who first saw the apparition lied to Saul and told him it was Samuel just to see his reaction. Well, I don't know what the point of that would be. And second is that it was a demon impersonating Samuel. Third is that it was just a vision and not Samuel himself. After all, Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. And the fourth one was that it was actually Samuel. But some of the questions I had when I was reading the passage before I had even read any of the commentators was that why did she scream out in terror? I mean, this is her job. She should know her demons, which apparently she wasn't recognizing something. Something wasn't right. She describes Samuel to a T, an old man in a robe, a divine being. The word divine is specifically in this verse indicating from God or from a heavenly being. And it's not so much what Samuel looks like, I mean, anybody can dress the way they want, but it's what, Saul, it's what Samuel says to Saul. He speaks the truth. He repeats what he said when he was alive, then prophesies it, and then it comes to pass. Now, Satan would never speak the truth. He's the father of all lies. He, everything he promises, he never delivers. So, And on top of it all, Saul even freaks out when he's allowed to see Samuel and falls to the ground in homage. The following are a few commentators I thought made sense. One writes... So was Samuel summoned by Satan? Well, Samuel was summoned, but it could not have been by the demonic power of the witch. It is most likely that Samuel came not by the command of the witch, but by the will of God. This would explain why the woman cried out in shock when she saw the spirit whom she identified as a god. This suggests that she did not recognize this as one of her regular occultic activities and was just as shocked as Saul when an actual person came back from the dead. God permitted on this one special occasion that the soul of a departed prophet come as a witness from heaven to confirm the words he had spoken while on earth. Satan, if he had appeared to Saul, would have never spoken such truth. Another commentator points out that Samuel was not the last of God's dead servants to appear on earth. The Gospels record Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So continuing on to verse 15, Samuel says to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul says, well, I'm greatly distressed. The Philistines are waging war against me, and God departed from me, answers me by, neither by prophets, by dreams. Therefore, I called you that you can make known to me what I should do. Verse 16, then Samuel says, why do you ask me, seeing the Lord's left you and become your enemy? 
Then Samuel drops the bomb on Saul in verses 17 through 19. He tells Saul that the kingdom's been torn from him and given to David. He'd already told him this when he was alive. And he reminded Saul that he had disobeyed God in not utterly destroying the Amalekites, which God had ordered him to do, something he had already mentioned when he was alive. The Lord will give you, Samuel says, the Lord will give you, along with Israel, over into the hands of the Philistines tomorrow. You and your sons will be with me. And I don't think Samuel means be with me in glory. He means you'll be with me among those of us who are dead. The chapter closes with a distraught Saul, no better off now than when he walked into the cave to see the witch. And now he's on the ground with the witch feeding him his last supper. My opinion concerning Samuel is that it indeed was the prophet Samuel who came back from the dead. It was not the witch's doing, but God's, because Satan has no power over God's elect, especially the dead, and is nothing but an imposter. Even the witch recognized this was not her usual work and was terrified. God, on the other hand, has the authority to overrule, as he pleases, any principle of nature in order to accomplish his purposes. And in this one unique case in the Old Testament, he allowed Samuel back to speak to Saul. Satan would never have spoken truth, as Samuel did this night, and all that Samuel predicted came true. Samuel was simply confirming those words to Saul that he had spoken to him before. Satan never speaks the truth, he is a liar. And as some of these commentators pointed out, this is not the only time this happened. It happened with Moses and Elijah on the mountain, and three of the apostles recognized Moses and Elijah as being Moses and Elijah. So what practical principles and truths can we take from this? There's a few I came up with. Number one, do not seek counsel or refuge from the unbelieving world. Proverbs says, evil company corrupts good morals and do not enter the path of the wicked. David crossed to the other side when he ran to Gath, taking refuge among the enemy. This makes them David's enemies. If they were Israel's enemies, they're David's. He did not trust the Lord to keep him safe in spite of all of the history of what God had done for him. Romans 8.28, though, can still be seen, even though David made this mistake, because God used David's crossing over to wipe out some of the Amalekites. So that worked, that worked in favor. But the end never justifies the means. He lied to Achish. This will later come back to haunt him and will be catastrophic in the end for Ziklag, as we're going to see. Number two, do not take personal revenge, even if you have an opportunity to do so. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. We're not to play judge, jury, or executioner, because that's God's job. David showed great restraint time and time again in not killing Saul when he had a perfect opportunity to do so. He quoted scripture, just as Jesus did to Satan. And he tried to follow that advice to do the right thing. That's the same thing we're supposed to do, follow God's word. And it's so hard sometimes because our emotions get ahead of us. Number three, repentance will one day run out for those who continue to reject the truth of God. The heart will become hardened beyond the point of no return. God then leaves the unbeliever to his own devices and abandons him. Romans 1 is very clear about this. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found for he will abundantly pardon. But Saul had passed this point of repentance and he entered the death chamber, banished from the Lord forever. And I read this quote about being banished from the Lord forever. Someone once wrote, you may be exhausted from work. Your employer may be giving you a raw deal. You may have health and family problems. But the scripture says there's something far worse than all of these. Do you realize what a wonderful thing it is 
to have access to the throne of grace and seek the face of God in prayer, and you realize that all the suffering that you're going through is not nearly as tragic as crying, God has turned away from me. This, my friends, is the worst thing that could ever happen to someone, to have God turn his face away from us. This is exactly what happened to Saul, and don't let it happen to any of us. Repent while you still have time. And the fourth thing, the last thing, avoid anything to do with the occult. And this is a big one. There's so much passed off today as innocent fun, when in reality it's trafficking in the powers of darkness. A believer has no place to be involved in this. No Christian should be involved in any type of witchcraft, magic, psychics, palm reading, horoscopes, anything involving contact with the dead. I see professing Christians reading the horoscope in the newspapers and I can't figure that out. In the Old Testament, this carried the death penalty. Isaiah 8 says, when they say to you, inquire of mediums, inquire of necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Isaiah 47 says, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from youth. Perhaps maybe you'll be able to inspire some terror in someone. You're weary because of your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you now, you who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars and let the new moons tell you what to do. The Lord's being sarcastic and saying, good luck with your magic, because it's gonna turn on you. The word sorcery mentioned here in Isaiah is really in Greek, the word pharmakia, which is where we get our word pharmacy. And in the sense here, it is the term for drugs not used for medicinal purposes. And that was a form of witchcraft. And in many fairy tales, it's passed off as witch, witch's brew, you cast spells. But today, we have all these illicit drugs out there that open the mind to demonic forces through altered states. And those who practice sorcery or take illicit drugs will not inherit the kingdom of God, according to Revelation and Galatians 5. And as most of us know, this has now become an epidemic in our world. We see unusually violent, demonic types of behavior as a result of taking them. And First Timothy predicted that the Spirit expressively says that in last times we'll depart from the faith, devoting ourselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. He's really talking theologically and doctrinally here, but it can also happen physically. Acts 19 shows us what people who come to salvation in the Lord actually did with their possessions that were connected with the occult. It says, and a number of those who practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all, and the value came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I don't know how much this was, but commentators say it was a lot of money. So it just shows you how much the city of Ephesus was dealing in the occult. And if adults are catching on to this, you can be sure Satan hasn't forgotten the children. In fact, he's made a huge business out of it. Satan does not want to scare the little ones away. It's like trying to get a squirrel with nuts. You've got to be real quiet, you've got to be real careful. So he makes wick the wickedness of witchcraft and the occult look like fun, exciting and innocent. And that's why the children are reading Harry Potter books and going to see these movies and these events. Children are deceived into thinking that demonic forces are not real, they're fairy tales, they're fun. Instead, we need to protect our children from these things because it only sets them up to not take satanic forces seriously. Instead, we need to feed them the word of God including all those warnings in the Word of God about the occult. Up here I have some uh, lists of some occultic um, practices that we need to watch out for. You're welcome to take some, there are two pages, but and it's not exhaustive, I'm sure there's more. But these are the things we need to watch out for in our lives and in the lives of our children. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful book, Samuel. And uh, the fact that even though David was a man after your heart, he still made mistakes. And Lord, we make them every day. And it's just good to know that they were not perfect. But we want to be a man and woman after your own heart as well, Lord. So just, we ask for your protection against the evil one. We ask that we go, that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to go to your scriptures each and every time we try and make a decision, Lord. And for those who have not repented, that they take this time to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.